Live from the bridge at the Launchpad Studios in Huntington, New York, it's Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Cardboard Memories, Clearview, Long Island, the law firm of Decalator, Cohen, and DePrisco, the Phoenix Tube Company, Pims Incorporated, fueling brand performance for 30 years, Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, and Soho Table Hockey. Here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is a man who had an 18-year career in the majors as a right-handed pitcher for the Philadelphia Phillies, St. Louis Cardinals, Boston Red Sox, Cleveland Indians, and the San Diego Padres. He is a two-time National League All-Star. Yesterday marked the 57th anniversary of his first major league win, which came in game two of a doubleheader against the Mets. The first game was Jim Bunning's perfect game. Tomorrow is the 51st anniversary of his no-hitter, a game in which he also slugged two home runs to support his own effort. He was a winning pitcher for the Boston Red Sox in Game 6 of the 1975 World Series, considered by some to be the greatest series game ever played. It is a pleasure to welcome Rick Wise to Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Rick. Thank you, Mark. Nice to talk with you. It's actually our pleasure. And before we get into some of those amazing moments we just mentioned, let's talk about your early career. So your dad had been a pitcher under legendary baseball coach Ray Fisher at the University of Michigan, where he actually pitched against a uh, a Philadelphia uh, Philly legend, Robin Roberts. He also played football behind Heisman Trophy winning halfback Tom Harmon. What are some of the things you learned early on from your dad um, that helped in your career and set the foundation for the pitcher you would become? Well, let's mention Robin Roberts first. Yeah, Robbie was at Michigan State, I believe, and uh, Dad was good friends. Actually, Robbie held me as a baby, for crying out loud. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I was in good hands, to say the least. But, uh, the, you know, the... The the big thing was, uh, you know, uh, during the days that I grew up as a, a boy, um, sports were what it all, was all about. I mean, whatever season was in, was in place at that time, that's the sport we played. I mean, there was only <laughs> there was only like three channels on TV, and they had lines through. So we were uh, we always headed out the door at the crack of dawn and played uh, and. and you know, played in the sports. So that was my growing up. And, you know, and and you would achieve a success at a very early age, 1958, when you're 12 years old, your Rose city team went to the little league world series three years later with more or less the same team. You went to the Babe Ruth world series. Uh, You pitched the second no hitter in the history of that tournament. Those accomplishments get the attention of lots of people. And you were scouted at a very early age. How aware were you as a young kid that scouts were watching you? And did you feel any pressure when you knew they were in the stands? No, I didn't. I, I really didn't. They, they, uh, they were pretty discreet, actually. Uh, we knew they were there, but um, didn't bother us uh, or me, for that matter. Uh, I, I would say, you know, Babe Ruth or high school ball was when they – it was getting close to graduation that they had a had a maybe a keen interest in me and uh, what might happen after I uh, graduated. 
So you attended James Madison High School in Portland, and you helped the school to its first baseball state championship in 1963. But you also excelled in other sports as well. You were all-city in football and basketball, all-city and all-state in baseball. So you had lots of coaches there, um, guys like Don Gassaway in, in basketball, Jerry Lyons in football, Bill Watelli in baseball. Which of those coaches had the biggest impact during your high school years and why? Well, Mark, I'm impressed by your by your background checks on all these people. You've done your homework. Uh, listen, uh, we're 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 in the process over the last couple of years of raising money uh, for a field house, and it's going to be named. It is named already after my high school baseball coach and uh, Bill Whittle, uh, just a wonderful man and, and most deserving of this. Uh, honor so uh and that gasway was i think uh uh was junior uh baseball and um he was my my uh basketball coach uh but bill whittler uh, besides my dad of course uh had the most impact on my baseball career um in little league it was uh jack jack uh uh it was ray fisher and, uh, you know, we just, we had such success at a young age. And I mean, they were all the local kids. Uh, we just really developed a dynasty going up through little league, Babe Ruth, Legion ball. My brother, Tom's Legion team won, I forget the year, but they won the national championship. Tom had a, had a short career of seven years, but, uh, knee injuries, uh, and surgery, uh, cut his career short, but nevertheless, uh, Madison was really a dynasty over the years and really set the standard, uh, uh, you know, for baseball and, and his success. So we mentioned the scouts coming early on and, and then you said it seemed to intensify while you're in high school and, you know, scouts start showing that interest. Your dad being an educator, I'm sure wanted to make sure you got an education out of high school. Um, but you had those scholarship offers in all three sports as well as lots of interest from the Phillies. Um, Scout Glenn Elliott wanted to sign you to a pro contract. So what went into that decision to sign with the Phillies as opposed to accepting scholarships and maybe going on to college before turning pro? Yes, well, of course, my dad, uh, he, he he did want me to get a college education, and uh, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that for sure because there were some very fine offers for full scholarships, uh, University of Oregon, Oregon State, and others, but... Um, you know, I, I knew at a very young age, uh, uh, I was consumed with baseball growing up. And, uh, you know, I wanted to be a major league baseball pitcher. And so when the time came, uh, I think dad knew. <laughs> he, he knew and mom knew that uh, I was going to go in the direction of turning pro at 17. And uh, so Glenn Elliott, I mean, this man was was such a special person, so calm and laid back, everything up front. I had the same offers from Pittsburgh, from the Yankees, and I think there was two other teams all around the same. It wasn't huge money, uh, but, uh, but 
of course, with these days, I mean, but they're all around twelve, thirteen thousand dollars, and uh, so. But anything at that time over eight thousand dollars qualified you as a bonus baby. Whether it was eighty five hundred or eighty five thousand, you had to be protected by the parent club the following year. Otherwise, there was a supplemental draft, and the club that signed you could lose you. So that's why me and Johnny Briggs, uh, you know, were were on the roster of the '64 Phillies because of that rule. And uh, you know, uh, one year removed from high school, the state championship, and here you are facing Mays. And, and McCovey and Banks and Aaron. I mean, I cut my teeth on some of the greatest players ever. Yeah, it's interesting that you mention that because you start your professional career first at Class A Bakersfield under Bob Wellman. Uh, the two other pretty good young pitchers on that team, Grant Jackson, Gary Wagner. Uh, you get in 12 games. You have a 2.63 ERA, strike out 98 in 65 innings. You know, before you get to the majors, what's that adjustment from Legion ball and high school ball to that first year in professional ball? Probably the first time you're living on your own. You know, what was the adjustment like to to just acclimate to all of that? Well, Mark, I'm telling you, I I tried to just just be a human sponge and absorb everything, gain knowledge from everyone that had input into my baseball career. Uh, my coaches, the bear, Bob Wellman, what a wonderful guy, man. He was really cool. Made it easy for me to make the adjustment. And, um, it just, it just, uh, you can't just transform yourself from being an amateur. And, uh, all of a sudden, you know, you're a professional and you got to really, uh, work hard at your craft and uh, and try to gain knowledge every day you're playing until uh, you know that was a that was a full season a ball uh, California State League was a good league and uh, so you were you were faced with you know experienced players a lot a lot older than seventeen and who'd been around the uh, block a couple times if, if they hadn't moved up. But uh, it, it was just something you just, uh, you know, you put your nose to the grindstone and make make the most of every day on the field. So you mentioned the fact that the, the signing bonus that you got made you a bonus baby, so you needed to stay on the team. Um, the next year, age 18, you're going to spend the entire 1964 season with the Phillies. How did you find out that you, you made the big club out of spring training? Who told you? And you know what what was your initial reaction? Well, it was, I mean, during spring training, you know, uh, when you're out there in the outfield shagging, um, all of a sudden, a coach comes out and whistles and signals you in. And uh, normally, <laughs> that's not a good sign in spring training. You're either going to be sent down or traded or cut or whatever. But so come on in and see the skipper, Gene Mock. And so uh, he's the one that uh, broke the news. And uh, he was a man, I mean, that. Uh, 
he was kind of intimidating, to say the least. I mean, I was only 18, for crying out loud. And, but, the, you know, he was the youngest He was the youngest manager in the league that year. He was only 38, so still he's 20 years older than me and uh, kind of like a father figure. But, uh, yeah, he, they, they called us in from the outfield uh, as, as the uh, closing days of spring t- training took place, and they called guys in. At, at, you know, two, three, four days before uh, we broke camp, and that's when they told you, you know, you you made the club or you didn't make the club. But uh, you know, I was aware of the situation, and um, so I, I really didn't know it was going to happen. I was hoping I would make the club, but you know, I really hadn't done anything <laughs> to earn the right to be in the major leagues. It was just the way the rules were at that time. It's funny you mentioned that because now, you know, 18 year olds are a little more commonplace than they were back then. Obviously, not many pitchers broke in at that age um, at 18. So you're still a very young man. But you mentioned earlier how you as a young boy, you just loved baseball. You, you know, ate, drank and sleep baseball. What's it like, you know, as an 18 year old? To, to see yourself on, on a baseball card for the first time, you know, being a fan of the game, all of a sudden at 18 years old, you're on a baseball card. Well, it's kind of surreal, obviously. Uh, <laughs> you, you just, you're just uh, trying to get a feel for life as a big leaguer and life as, as a young man that's really been put into a, a man's game, a man's world. I mean, grown men. And you're just trying to uh, figure everything out on a daily basis. And uh, these other things were neat and stuff, the cards and, you know, uh, getting, you know, your uniforms uh, fit to, to your body and all that sort of stuff. And uh, interviews, and, and, and uh, of course, it is as is, is prevalent now. I mean, then as it is now with with television uh, interviews and the way everything is, uh, you know, shown around the world daily. I mean, instantly, really. Uh, back then, it was it was much simpler, really, and uh, uh, there wasn't. Uh, really the the exposure that everyone gets now in all sports but it was just uh, it was trial and error and uh, trying to get better and uh, wanting to make uh, wanting to make a career out of the game not just you know a couple of years and then you're done um, and you know I, I wanted to make a long career out of it I wanted to win 200 games I had that as a goal and um, except for some injuries during during my career, particularly the '74 year, my first year in Boston, um, uh, I, I came up. I, I fell 12 games short of 200, but um, that's the way it goes. <laughs> so, and had had some of those Philly teams been a little better, you would have cer- certainly blown that number away for sure. Um, your first career start, you get a no decision. Your second career start was such a memorable day for sure. It happened 57 years ago yesterday. Uh, that start comes in the second game of a doubleheader against the New York Mets in Chase Stadium. 
it's Father's Day. Uh, could you tell our audience, for those that might know what was historic about that day, um, a little bit about it, and just as having to be the pitcher to follow that up, what's that like? And then getting your win uh, after such an amazing day. Well, yeah. Mark, it was, it was like I said, it was before. It, it was surreal. I mean, I was watching in the clubhouse. I was, I was watching Jim's game uh, take place and inning by inning, and uh, Tony Taylor's great play uh, against Jesse Gonder to uh, keep that uh, perfect game in place. Um, but I was, you know, I was. <laughs> I was a fan of the game and of Jim right then, watching uh, every inning, every pitch, and and they just kept building up, building up, and uh, finally it was over, and everyone came streaming into the clubhouse, and uh, all the the press were around there, all the players jumping up and down and everything, and I. <laughs> I said I went went over to my looking for my uh, catcher bullpen catcher. I said I need a ball. I got to go warm up. I didn't have a baseball to go warm up, <laughs> and so finally I got one first and went down to uh, went down to the uh, bullpen of course and and warmed up and got ready for the game and you know I uh, got through the third first three innings with no hits and then the fourth inning I walked a guy and the whole stadium erupted and stood up I'm saying what's going on here you know and you know later I realized that was the first base runner in like 13 <laughs> innings and, and the Mets fans it was a Bronx cheer uh, that finally someone got on base but Johnny Clipstein and I combined for a three-hitter in that second game, and I think it's still a National League record for a doubleheader of of only three hits. Yeah, um, totally crazy. Yeah, unbelievable. So you've also mentioned that you know, as an 18-year-old, you're also trying to you know get your the lay of the land as far as media, even though it was a lot less than. I'm just wondering on that particular day. Um, in the second game, if you happened to end up on Kiner's corner, or was that something you know you ended up on your career as well? It's a, a big uh, staple here in New York, something that people look back on fine, fondly. I was just wondering if you were ever on Kiner's corner. I don't recall. It wasn't that day because that was a Sunday and that was a getaway game, and so uh, there wasn't any. Uh, it didn't go anywhere, you know. After that game, we just jumped on the buses and moved off to the. Uh, next city, wherever that was, but um, I, I don't recall. Perhaps, but uh, it doesn't come come to mind right away. So your best year, nineteen seventy one, seventh season pitching for the Phillies, uh, June twenty third, fifty one years ago. Tomorrow, you throw a no hitter against the Pete Rose, Johnny Bench, George Forster, Tony Perez Reds at Riverfront Stadium. Final score is 4 nothing. You drive in three of the four runs with two home runs, one in the fifth, which was a two-run shot, and a solo home run in the eighth. The only pitcher in Major League history to throw a no-hitter and hit two home runs in the same game. What's your fondest memories of that game? What was the toughest out? Just take us through a little bit of that game. Well, first of all, 
I have to say that I wasn't feeling that good uh, initially. I was coming off the effects of the flu, and uh, I only gone like I, I got. I only went like four innings or something like that the game before, and I had to come out, and so I, I didn't feel at uh, at top speed, and but um, you know. You, you, you go to the game, and it, you know, it's still it was my turn to pitch, and I'm going to pitch regardless to give them the best effort. You know, the team's counting on me, and uh, so I'm warming up. It's you know, it's a hundred degrees at least on the on the turf still at you know six thirty uh, p.m. and uh, and I'm warming up, and I <laughs> I feel so weak that. It seems like the ball is stopping halfway to the catcher. I, I, I said, "Oh, I better locate my pitches well, or I'm not going to be in this game long with this with this lineup against me." But uh, you know, they were the Reds were offering early in the count at my pitches, and uh, the first three innings went bam, 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 and I, the the heat I think sweated out the effects of the flu. And uh, I got stronger as the game went on. And uh, the first home run was the high slider uh, off Ross Grimsley and, uh, uh, to give us the lead. And, uh, and then as the game rolled on, I've always thought as a starting pitcher, you, can't, you don't think about a no-hitter until you've gone at least seven innings and you need six more outs. And so... Uh, there was only, I can't believe this. I think there was only like three, three or four balls hit out of the infield. And I wasn't really a, a ground ball pitcher. I was a high, I was a high fastball pitcher, fly ball pitcher, basically. But, uh, they were offering early and often at the, the, the in the count, the pitches and the game just went along at a great pace, real fast. And, um, uh, so I get in, you know, I hit the la- uh, in the eighth inning. Uh, Clay Carroll, one of one of the r- real good uh, relievers at that time, uh, he went two and zero on me, and I stepped out of the box and looked down at the third base coach. He turned his back on me and walked towards the uh, left field, and so I knew the green light was on. And uh, Clay, <laughs> thinking, well, I'm just a pitcher, he grooved one. And uh, I hit it out again. <laughs> so, uh, but then in, in the uh, you know the last man you ever want to see uh, trying to get the twenty seventh out of a no hitter would be Pete Rose, the all time. I mean, he'd like nothing better to break up a no hitter, you know, the, with two outs in the ninth. And uh, I think I got to two and two or three and two and I threw a low away fastball and he, he, he punched it. He punched it. It was a semi line drive right at John Bukovic at third and the game was over. I only threw 94 pitches. It was an hour and 53 and that game was over. And <laughs> it, uh, it was just, uh, unbelievable, uh, that, uh, against, against that team. And of course, any pitcher to throw one no hitter, uh, in, in their career is, is really special, but I know there's uh, there were three other pitchers that hit 
one home run during a no-hitter, but uh, to hit two uh, was extra special, of course. I was, I'm was i just trying to do whatever I can to win a game. I mean, I had two home runs uh, in another game that season, which tied a National League record, and then uh, and one of them was a grand slam, as a matter of fact, and I ended up with six home runs that year, so I... Uh, I worked hard at my hitting and bunting, and and it just uh, gave me a, gave me and, a, and the team, uh, you know, a better chance to win a ball game. That's what it's all about. Absolutely, such a different era. I mean, I, you remember the Mets pitching staff, the way they worked at hitting as well. And you mentioned an hour and fifty three minutes. That's two innings in today's baseball. Um, <laughs> yeah. 1971, that same year, you win 17 games uh, for the last place Phillies that only won uh, that lost 95 games. After that season, you're traded to the St. Louis Cardinals for Steve Colton. Both of you and Colton were uh, involved in difficult contract talks with your teams, which is probably the only reason a trade of that magnitude uh, gets made. What's your reaction to that trade? And when it's a star for a star. Human nature, I'm just wondering, did you, uh, going forward, compare yourself to what Carlton was doing to just, you know, did that push you to, to do better because you wanted to say, listen, you know, the, the Phillies, you know, screwed up on this one? No, not really. But let me, let me set the record straight. I wasn't traded for Steve Carlton. He was traded for me. <laughs> So, no, I <laughs> know <laughs> uh, both uh, both me and Steve were at loggerheads with our respective uh, GMs, and uh, I mean John Quinn was an iron-fisted guy, man, and he he he, uh, he put his thumb down on the young players all the time, and and, and paid the veterans pretty good to make up where he didn't have to pay the, 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 uh, you know, the, the younger players, but Steve and I, uh, and as a matter of fact, we both lived, you know, when I was straight, when I went to St. Louis, I bought a home there and, uh, which funny thing, both, both years that I made the all-star team and, and bought a home, I got traded. So, so much for security, but, uh, uh, no, I mean, Steve and I were good friends. We went hunting together in the off season and stuff. It, it was just one of those things. Uh, I, you know, his, his first year over there with Philly after we got traded, he went like 27 and 10 or whatever. And, uh, with a team that won like 50 some games and, uh, I went like 16. I won 16 games, and uh, everyone said, "Oh, what a what a steal the Phillies got and everything." So I had to live with that. But uh, in 70, uh, 73, uh, I was the starting and winning pitcher in the All Star game, and Carl lost 20 games the next year. So yep. maybe maybe someone said. Oh well, maybe it's maybe it's even now. But of course, he went on to win three hundred games or whatever. He, he was a tremendous pitcher. It didn't have anything to, personally to do with us. That was baseball at that time. It just that's the way it was. You, you were traded. You were traded. So, 
Yeah, which is interesting because you you mentioned your success that you had with the Cardinals, those two back-to-back 16-game win seasons, the All-Star game, the win at the All-Star game. And despite that success in St. Louis, you traded again, this time to the Red Sox for Bernie Carbo, uh, with Bernie Carbo, for uh, Reggie Smith and Ken Tatum. And that sets up another memorable moment in your career, a a memorable year in your career, as you lead the Red Sox with 19 wins, which was one more than Luis Tian's 18, two more than Belize's 17. At one point in that season, you won nine games in a row as the Red Sox rolled towards the AL East division title. You also win the clinching game of the American League Championship Series, beating the A's 5-3 in Oakland, holding them to six hits, two earned runs, and that's just as powerful a lineup as the red, big red machine. In the World Series, you start game three. You get a no decision. Uh, that's the game the Reds won in the bottom of the 10th on the controversial head arm, Brister uh, Bunt. Your only other appearance in the World Series gets you a win in one of the most iconic World Series games ever. You were the fourth pitcher of the night in game six. You hold the Reds scoreless in the top of the 12th. Walk me through where you were in the dugout in the bottom of the 12th and what you saw during Colton Fisk's at bat. Wait a minute. Say that again, Mark. Where was I in the bottom of the twelfth? In the bottom, uh, in the bottom of the twelfth, when Colton Fisk comes up to the plate in that World Series game after you had just gotten the Reds out. You know, walk me through what what you're going through, what you're watching, and and what you see. Well, I was I was just kind of drying off and everything, and uh, Pudge was coming up, and we just hoped to get something going, and uh, all of us were. You know, kind of. We were, no one was really sitting down. Everyone was on their feet. You know, as they, everyone does in big games, you're on, you're on edge. You you want to win this game. Of course, there there wouldn't be another game if we lost that one. Uh, so we had to win that one. And uh, you know, it's past midnight already, and so uh, but it didn't matter. Uh, we were ready to go, and uh, Pudge, um, you know, it was a low, low fastball. I've seen replays of that pitch, it was low, kind of low and in, and he just went down and got it. And and everyone was doing the same thing Pudge was with body English. Everyone was going, <laughs> stay fair, stay fair, stay fair. And everyone with their hands was were going, to, you know, to to the right so that uh, it would stay fair and. And it did. It hit the pole, and uh, and uh, just everyone went, went wild. The, the stadium, the, you know, our dugout just raced out there and everything. And it was just well, we got another game. We got an, we we're in we're in the seventh. We got a seventh game, and uh, and uh, because no one really gave us a chance, no one gave us a chance against the A's. They were three-time world champions for crying out loud, and uh, we were, I think, prohibitive underdogs against the, the big red machine. And uh, but uh, you know, and I, I must, I must add this: uh, Pudge will always be remembered for that dramatic home run. But let's give some kudos to Bernie Carbo. We would not have, we, we would not have gotten to uh, Pudge Fisk in the twelfth inning if it wasn't for Bernie. I mean, jeepers! 
that three-run homer he hit. I mean, he barely fouled off, barely fouled off a two-strike pitch, and then uh, to stay alive, and then the next pitch drove it in the center field seats. It was, it was tremendous, and that gave us life, and uh, really, and uh, no, I don't think anyone ever, you know, remembers Bernie that much. Or what he did for us, and uh, and but they should because it was dramatic. It was just as dramatic as Fisk, but his was a walk off. And so, um, all in all, anyway, it was just such a tremendous game, and uh, one that I'm very proud uh, to have been a part of. And such a, you know, you mentioned Bernie, and it's so interesting that both of you came in the same trade and were huge in that game. You get the win, Bernie ties it up with the home run as well. You'd finish out your playing career in Cleveland after you're traded for, again, another future Hall of Famer in Dennis Eckersley. Uh, then with the Padres, you sign as a free agent. You look at all the managers you played for, Gene Mock, George Myatt, Bob Skinner, Frank Lucchese. Red Shandy, Daryl Johnson, Don Zimmer, Jeff Torborg, Dave Garcia, Jerry Coleman, Frank Howard, and Dick Williams. Which are the ones that you enjoyed playing for the most and, and the least, and why? Oh, uh, <laughs> well, you know, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't uh, really let the managers dictate the way I, I trained or prepared myself for games that much. Gene Mock was intimidated. I mean, after all, I was only 18 years old and a first year in the big league. So I just kept my eyes and ears open and my mouth shut and tried to learn as much as I could. Gene Mock was new baseball as good as or better than any manager I ever played for. And uh, to start with him, but uh, Red Shane, he was so such an easygoing guy, and I loved it. I, I you know, when I had teammates like uh, Brock and uh, Tory and Gibby, and uh, you know, it was just uh, I just loved I loved uh, St. Louis. I loved the fans. Uh, they were they were very solid fans, and they still are. St. Louis is a great baseball town town great baseball town you know but, you, uh, you mentioned the, the, you mentioned those cardinal teammates um and i you know it just dawned on me and it, it's a great question to ask you because you saw him so early on in his career and unfortunately he didn't make the hall of fame dick uh, dick allen what, what's your opinion on you know where he stands in, in the you know the hierarchy in baseball and should he be a hall of famer well he's like you know, I, I I actually speak with Willa, his wife, from time to time. We, uh, you know, we both lost our loved ones, and uh, you know, Dick, I think lost by one vote, something like that. So I recall. Yeah, one vote. Uh, yep, one vote. Um, he could play the game. He was he he was way ahead of his time, Mark. I mean, the stuff the guys do these days, I mean, Dick Allen didn't do anything overly wrong, or he was just, he was just ahead of his time. Great having him, pound for pound, could hit a ball further than any man I ever saw, played against or played with, 
in the uh, in Major League Baseball. He could drive a ball way, way, way out. And uh, he could run. He could steal. Great base runner. Made the transition. It, it was it was difficult. They put him in, at third base in the hot corner, and uh, he had trouble not usually catching the ball, but throwing the ball. But, uh, you know, he's he was a very, very strong, solid player. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what goes through people's minds and the voting and stuff, how they, how they come to their conclusions and stuff. You know, uh, you know. Also, I, I, I did mention Teddy Simmons, who, who's going into the Hall of Fame this year. So, uh, that, those Cardinal teams were excellent, uh, strong, strong teams, and uh, you know we were right there. I think we had we had to wait. I think the second year we had to wait for the for the uh, the Mets. I think to beat the Cubs twice or something um, to, to see who went to the World Series. Um, so they, I think they won it by a game and a half. Half. Uh, yep. after, after winning those two games. And we had to wait extra, you know, an extra day or so after the season ended, officially ended, uh, ended for us. But, um, yeah, I... I uh, the other managers, they, you know, they were, I, I don't wasn't anything special or they were good or bad. They were, and they were good men, good baseball people, and everything. But I, I didn't uh, really think that much about uh, who the manager was. I just got myself prepared uh, for my start uh, to be ready every five days. So. And you were ready for sure because you know, 30% of your starts ended up in complete games thrown by you. Uh, Rick, thanks so much for your time tonight. More importantly, thanks for some uh, amazing uh, memories from your career. Uh, got to see you pitch many, many times at Chase Stadium. It seemed every single time you know, you, you know your teams came in, you always uh, I was there and you pitched. So uh, thanks for lots of memorable moments. Well, thank you, Mark. It's been enjoyable. I appreciate you calling. Our pleasure. Rick Wise, two-time National League All-Star, 188 Major League career wins.